heard this morning, um, and just kind of piggybacking off of that, but I pray it'll be a, a blessing and, a, and a, just an incredible time for us to continue just to stay right where we're going to be today. So let me begin with a question for us. So how many in here are good with dates? I'm, I'm not talking about getting dates or going out on dates, so I'm not, not talking about that. Um, I'm talking about um, dates of important events that have happened, especially like in our country. Anybody good with dates? Um, we'll see. I'm, I'm about to give you a little test to see how good you do. I don't think anybody's going to do as good as the professor um, did. That would be David Thomas. I think he got every single question um, right. Um, I think Brother Curtis should be able to get them since he was alive for all of these. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Got to... Uh, move, moving right Uncle Jack, you're not enthused. I know, I'm sorry. Bad joke. So let's go ahead and I, I'm going to give you a date and just see how you do. So if you get about eight, you're, you're going to be good. If you get ten or more, you're, you're, just, you're awesome. So let, we're going to start easy. So July 4th, 1776. Okay, so the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. So we've got that. Okay, February 4th. 1789, February 4th, 1789. Just, just say it if you... George Washington became the first president of the United States, February 4th, 1789. The next one, April 14th, 1865. April 14th, 1865. No, close. Okay, Lincoln was assassinated, April 14, 1865. The next one, April 15th, 1912. April 15th, 1912. Titanic, um, sinking of the Titanic. Um, next, April 6th, 1917. April 6th, 1917. U U.S. enters World War I. So U.S. enters World War I. Okay, October 24th, 1929. October 24th, 1929. It's, it's called Black Thursday, um, and it's the day of the Great Depression, stock market crash, all, all of those things, October 24th. Next one, we should know this one, December 7th, 1941. So a day that will live in infamy, as, as we know. Um, another one, uh, November 22nd, 1963. So the assassination of President Kennedy. November 22nd, 1963. Um, next one, um, July 20th, 1969. July 20th. So uh, Apollo 11, the moonwalk before Michael Jackson. Um, so we have that. Uh, then the next would be uh, August 8th, 1974. August 8th, 1974. So Nixon resigned on that day, August 8, 1974. Here's one, hopefully some of us will know. Um, most of us, January 28, 1986. So the Challenger explosion. Okay, and then of course one that we all know, September 11, 2001. Okay, what we always say is 9-11. Um, so September 11th, mine and Misty's second anniversary. On that day, I know. Um, and then one that goes along with that, May 1st, 2001, uh, 2011, excuse me, May 1st, 2011. So the death of Bin Laden, Osama Bin Laden um, killed on that day. So don't know how well you did on that test, how many of you uh, got 
eight or more, or ten or more. We'll, we'll see. Let, let you kind of think about that. I know it's hard off the top of your head to um, call into to mind all of those things. But there is a day, a date that I purposefully left off. A day, if we're going to be honest, um, whose infamy overshadows the infamous events of all of those, maybe even put together. And that date is January 22nd, 1973. It was on that date, 45 years um, tomorrow, that the Supreme Court handed down its decision um, in the case of Roe v. Wade, in which they essentially gave women unfettered access to um, termination, um, abortion, up until even the birth of the child. And, uh, and just think about this, 45 years. This event for 45 years in my humble but accurate opinion, can, can, can be described as the most evil event in the history of the world. The history of the world happened here. And this morning we come to a heavy topic. It's a topic that we as the people of God maybe get uncomfortable with, but it's also a topic that we cannot ignore. Um, we cannot be indifferent towards it. And that topic is a topic of life, especially the life of the Unborn, And let me just kind of lay out the, the dark reality of the world we live in and beginning with the nation that we live in. Since um, 1973, in America, close to 60 million babies have been aborted. So let, let this sink in. 1.4 million abortions happen each year, over 3,000 occurring every day, and one occurring every 20 seconds. Meaning that in the time that we sit here in this worship service, there will be 345 um, babies who are aborted um, during that time. Then think about this. 93% of all abortions in the United States are performed um, on healthy mothers with healthy babies. 93%. This is a Holocaust like no other. Just to put things in perspective, it is said that Stalin um, killed 40 million of his own countrymen. Um, Hitler is said to have killed or uh, murdered 30 million Yet in the last 45 years in our nation, close to 60 million um, little boys and little girls have been, been killed. And then don't forget that we also live in a world where other um, children matter. So in the world that we live in, every single year in our world, 46 million babies are aborted every year. Just think about that reality. Do we understand that reality? And the question for the church today is, do we care? Do we care about that reality. The hope of the life of a baby has now hinged on a choice. I love the words of Clifford Bahima. He's a, a, just a pro-life um, speaker, advocate. Listen to what he says. He says, if it were possible for the unborn child to choose to be wanted or unwanted, the child would predictably and rightfully choose to be wanted. But if the alternative to being wanted is being eliminated, what kind of choice is that? Since the child cannot even make the choice, there are those who make its choice for it by killing it and then piously pretending that their killing is really not an act of murder but of mercy because it's done as a humanitarian favor to the child. So this is the world that we, we live in. This is the concept of what people believe. And before we jump in today, let me just say this. I'm going to we're going to build all of this today upon the Word of God, but also upon some scientific truths. And we believe, humbly, we believe that science, when approached humbly, always points us um, back to God as the creator of all things. And this morning during our time, there's going to be times where I'm going to look very passionate. I'm going to look and sound very upset. And I believe that I have a reason to be so. I think of 1 Samuel 17 where David looked at his brother and said, Is there not a cause? 
Is there not a reason for me to be asking these questions or thinking this way? And I think it's the same way. Is there not a reason, a cause for, for there to be um, a picture of being upset when we think about the world um, that we, we live in? And, and when I think about this message, I've been praying all week in, in, a, in a really powerful way. I've been praying that God would give me the boldness to stand in front of all, uh, all of our, our people today in both services and tell everyone that abortion is murder. It is murder. It is the intentional killing of an unborn child. And this day that we call the sanctity of human life is a day that I hate. I hate it. I think of the words of of Russell Moore, Dr. Russell Moore. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention Ethics and Religious Liberties Committee. And uh, he kind of shared that sentiment and said, I hate this day. And let, let, let me just tell you what he says. He says, I hate sanctity of human life Sunday because I'm reminded that we have to say things to one another that human beings shouldn't have to say. We shouldn't have to stand up and say that women um, should desire to keep their babies or that fathers should want to um, have children and father their children. We shouldn't have to say that, but we do. And there's a chance, even a chance of maybe what I'm going to say might even shrink the, the congregation. I was told at the end of the last service that everything I said was nonsense, so I'll let you be the, the judge of, of that, whether this is nonsense or not. I believe this is worth speaking and regardless of your opinion on it, take your opinion, line it up with the Word of God, and see if it, um, how, how it sits. But there might be a, a point of, or a chance of people leaving, saying, um, I don't want to be a part of this, this is too political, this is this or, or that. But let me just say this, if we lose anybody, it's a small price to pay for us standing up for the truth of what God's Word says. It's a small price to pay for us standing up for the truth of what God's Word says. I, I'm praying instead that everyone in this room will leave here understanding the true picture of the sanctity of every human life, that we would be a people that would be pro-life for the entire life of an individual in the same way that we would also be here lifting high and extending the grace of God to those who need um, it extended to them, which is all of us. So um, if you have your Bible, Psalm 139, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word together. We're going to read Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 together, and here's what it says. David is writing, and he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let's pray together. Father, we need your wisdom. We need your help. We need your guidance. God, we need your spirit. Show us, Lord, what the truth is from your word. Lord, we don't want to just presume on your word. We don't want to assume, Father. We want to know what your word declares. And God, we know that um, truth of your word um, will endure forever. So just lead us into that truth now. Help us to see all that we need to see. God, help us to not just see it, help us to feel it, help us to do something with it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So let me just, let me just kind of lay this out there. I know there are some who, when we think about sanctity of human life, think about abortion, immediately think, oh, here we are in a church getting into a political issue or political subject. And just understand, when we think about abortion, it is not mainly a political issue. Abortion is also not mainly a woman's right or women's right issue. 
It is a spiritual issue, meaning abortion above everything else is about God. It is about the one who creates life and the one who sustains life, the one who's the judge of the living and the dead, the father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Abortion is about him. So what we want to do this morning is we want to kind of unpack three truths, and uh, there's a lot of kind of sub-points that we're going to get into as well this morning, but three truths concerning a, a holy and loving God, um, and then also kind of putting right beside that a heinous act. So three truths concerning a holy and loving God and a, and a heinous act. So um, let's unpack these together. So the first truth is this, abortion in the sight of God. So abortion in the sight of God. How does God see life? How does God see um, the unborn? How does God see it? And here's what we know. First of all, abortion is an affront on God's authority as creator. It's an affront on God's authority as creator. Look at verse 13 again. David says, you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David gives this beautiful picture of God knitting him, knitting every child together in the womb. Now, I'm not a knitter. I've never knitted anything in my life, ever. I don't plan on being a knitter. Um, but here's what, I, here's what I think. Although, beautiful hat, Brandy. That was a beautiful hat. But... I, <laughs> But kind of close. But the, the point is, those things don't happen accidentally. Now, maybe you're in here and you go, yeah, I tried to knit a hat and it ended up being a pair of socks. Um, but we're talking not, humanly speaking, we're talking about God. And God doesn't do things accidentally. Meaning, when we think about this, mankind is not viewed in the Bible as a cosmic accident. Mankind is viewed in the Bible as a purposeful creation of a loving and caring God. God purposefully knit us together in our mother's womb. God himself is the giver of life. Listen to Job 12, verse 10, that says, In his hand, in God's hand, is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind in the hand of God. He's sovereign over all creation. But then secondly, abortion is an assault on God's work in creation. So Abortion is an assault on God's work and creation. And we're about to dive in kind of deep here. But look at verse 14. David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And just think about this. Let me tell you what David's not doing. David is not standing in the mirror admiring himself going, God, you did good on this one. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God, you couldn't do any better than this. I mean, David's not, that's not the picture. David's not standing in front of the mirror going, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people will like me. That's not the, the picture. What David is doing in this is he's kind of stepping back, and he's seeing all of the work of creation. He's seeing himself as a point and, and as a part of God's creation and he's saying that when we see ourselves as part of God's creation it should leave us in awe and in praise of what God has done in us and for us and in theology we are called the imago Dei we have been made in the image of God meaning that we are image bearers now I might upset some of you right now but let me just say this whales and sea turtles are not equal to us Dogs and cats are not equal to us. We are image bearers. We and we alone have been made in the image of God. In fact, look at Genesis 5 with me real quick. Genesis 5. Something I want you to see in verses 1 and verse 3 of Genesis chapter 5. So Genesis 5, when you get there, okay, when the rest of you get there, 
when you want me to think you're there. So look at verse 1. It says, this is the book of the generation of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So we have a recap of all humanity, um, beginning at Adam, being made in the image of God. Imago Dei, image bearers of God. Then look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, get these words, after his image and named him Seth. So Adam had a son in his likeness, in his image. Now whose image was Adam made in? The image of God. So Adam in having children or having children who were also made in the image of God. Now sin messes up. We're not perfect images of God because of sin. We're imperfect images of God, but we are still image bearers. So think about that. We are image bearers. Therefore, abortion is an assault on the image of God. Just let that sink in for just a second. I don't want to just stop there. I don't, don't want to just stop with the Word of God, even though everything begins and ends with the, the Word of God. I want to also take a couple of scientific truths and lay them over the Word of God, not underneath because the Word of God must be the foundation, but lay them over um, the, the Word of God and, and kind of just show us real quick what's happening in the womb. And what is happening in the womb is absolutely glorious. The idea that life begins at conception is not just a biblical idea. It's scientific truth. When you, when you think about it, every single one of us in this room has a beginning. Every single one of us in this room has a time when we were conceived. Now, we're not going to go into the birds and the bees talk today, but every single one of us in this room had a time where we were conceived. What we know is that when a baby is conceived, within two weeks, get this, there's a heartbeat. Within two weeks, by eight weeks, the baby will suck its own thumb, a thumb that has a fingerprint. Um, the baby will respond to sound. There is evidence that at eight weeks, the baby is dreaming. Also, at eight weeks, all major organs are functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidneys are clearing fluid. Um, the nervous system is developed. In fact, it's been proven that babies at eight weeks even recoil from pain. And then let me say this. Just about every single abortion that happened in our nation last year happened after eight weeks. After this time. And, and this is the reality that we live in. Just, just think about this. If the unborn is not a human, then you don't have to justify what's happening to the unborn. But if the unborn is a human, and the Word of God says it is, science says it is, then there is no justification for it. None at all. And let me just kind of keep pressing in here and just give you three insane, completely insane pictures that show the example of the depravity of mind of our nation. And I'm not trying to pick on our nation, but let me just show you the depravity of mind. Um, as, as Dad used to always say, our world has become so open-minded its brains have fallen out. And we see that. But let me just give you three examples. First of all, legally, legally, if you molest a, a bald eagle egg, you could either be heavily fined or thrown in prison. So get this, bald eagles in the egg are protected in our nation. Babies in the womb are not insanity. Uh, let, let me press on. Second, at least 38 um, states have fetal homicide laws, meaning that if a pregnant woman is driving to an abortion clinic to have her baby terminated and in the process 
a, a drunk driver runs a red light and hits her car and in hitting the car kills the baby in her womb, that drunk driver will be charged with homicide for killing the baby. Yet, if that drunk driver never gets to her and she continues on to the abortion clinic, she can have that baby ripped out of her and killed with no, no repercussions at all. Now, what I'm not saying is, well, if a woman is trying to get the baby aborted and it gets killed and the drunk driver shouldn't be, that's not the picture. The picture is this. The, the, drunk dri- the baby should be protected from the drunk driver and the baby should also be protected from the mother. That's the, the picture of what we need to understand and, and the depravity of mind. Let me just go a step further. A woman named Mary Elizabeth Williams, who's a pro-choice author, once wrote an article entitled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? in which she declared, listen to, this, listen to this logic, I know that throughout my pregnancies and abortions, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that, what, I believe that that's what a fetus is, a human life, and that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. And here's her rationale. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life is what is right for her circumstances. Her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always. And just so you know, just in case you want to hear my opinion on that statement, that is absolute nonsense, ignorance, and stupidity born out of a sinful and deprived mind. It is insane to think that way. Who gets to choose whose life has more value? Let me tell you who. God does. And thankfully, he has put a value on all of us. The argument has, has taken over, well, it's the woman's body, and the woman has the right to do whatever she wants to with her body. The baby is her body. And just think about this. The baby might be in the woman's body, but the baby is not the woman's body. The baby has its own DNA. The baby has its own genetic code. The baby has its own blood type. The baby has its own functioning organs. The baby exists inside of the woman, inside of the womb, but the baby is not the woman. The baby is independent of her. And just think about the argument that a woman has the right to do whatever she wants to do with her body. Really? Who in here has the right to do whatever we want to with our bodies? None of us do. Try to walk out here and sell your body and see what's going to happen. I mean, first of all, don't do that. Uh, don't go. The, the point, don't leave here going, well, the pastor said we could do it. It's against the law. Don't do it. There are laws that tell us. There are laws that say you can't take illegal things and put them in your body or try to buy illegal substances. So for us to go, who are you to tell me what I can do with my body? There are laws all over the books, all over our nation that tell us what we can and cannot do with our bodies. So just think about that. There's laws that govern that, not just biblical laws. But abortion is an assault on God's work in creation. But in third, abortion is an attack on God's relationship with the unborn. Look at um, Psalm 139 again. Look at verses 15 and 16. David goes on to say, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So not only does the science paint a clear picture of 
life in the womb, Scripture does as well. What we see is that God has an intimate relationship with the unborn. God is intricately weaving the unborn together. God is planning every day of the unborn child's life. God is fashioning every child. He values every child. He knows every child. He calls them. Listen to Jeremiah 1. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. God also names children. Listen to Isaiah 49.1. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. God also causes babies to leap in the womb. Think of Luke 1.44. Um, John the Baptist, when Mary comes, he leaps in the womb. God causes that. God doesn't have a casual relationship with a baby in the womb. God has an intimate relationship with a baby in the womb. It's God's doing. It's God's forming. It's God's fashioning. It's what He is doing. It's why Psalm 127 can say that children are a blessing from the Lord. It's His Doing. So just think about it. abortion in the sight of God. It goes against everything that God's word declares. But let's, let's lay a second truth on top of that, which is this. Abortion now and the grace of God. So abortion and the grace of God. Now we need to see abortion as murder against the life of an unborn child. But we also need to see, and I'm going to say something that might strike us a little differently. We need to see every one of us in this room as being guilty. Now, I'm not saying everyone in this room is guilty of committing the act. I don't know where you are or committing of encouraging the act. But I think most of us in this room, if we were to be honest, would have to be honest and say we've been indifferent towards this act. We've been indifferent. We haven't spoke up. We've, we've accepted the fact that we live in a world where 60 million babies have been aborted since 1973. And we just go on with it and... It's wrong. It's wrong for us to know to do right and do nothing about it. It's what Scripture says. Yet, it's important for us to see this huge issue in light of the gospel, in light of the grace of God. Let me say this. God doesn't look at murder, even um, this murder, even the murder of a baby, as some disqualifying sin when it comes to His grace. Meaning God does not say, I'll forgive you of this, but that I will never, ever forgive. I love the fact that God's word gives us a, a clear picture of, of those that God pulled from the fringes of the deepest darkness and made them the brightest lights. Let me give you three names. Moses, David, the Apostle Paul. What do all three of those have in common? Okay, they're men, but they're also murderers. They're every single Those three committed murder. Murderers. And yet God used them to be his greatest lights. Just let, let that sink in for a second. And what that shows us today, brothers and sisters, is there is no sin in your life or my life that is greater than the grace of God. There's no sin that is greater than the grace of God. It's not greater than the cross. None of our sins, no sin gets to define you when it comes to the grace of God. So let me just lay these two truths here. First of all, the grace of God covers sin. The grace of God covers sin. I love what Paul says in Romans 5.20. Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
Grace leaped over sin, covering sin. Sin might be great, but God's grace is greater. God is the Savior of sinners. That's good news for all of us. It's good news for any woman in this room who, who has had an abortion. It's good news for any um, person um, who has encouraged it. And it's good news for us who have done nothing about it. Our sin is not greater than the grace of God to forgive it. And the problem is, we don't see our sin for what it is. We look at our sin and we go, my sin is never that bad. And what we begin to do is we begin to qualify and go, well, my sin is the kind of sin that I really earn my salvation, whereas those will never be worthy of it. And we take salvation and we go off the reservations and make it what it is not. If you ever think you can earn your salvation or earn the grace of God, then it is no longer grace. We are not deserving of God's grace, yet God's grace abounds to us. I love what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy. Paul says, as a murderer, Paul says, I received mercy and grace overflowed for me. Such is the grace of God. There is no sin that is greater than God's grace to forgive. The grace of God covers sin, but then second of all, the grace of God changes sinners. The grace of God changes sinners. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, and such were some of you, meaning you used to be really, really bad, but this is who you are now. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things, old things, even those heinous sins that we're talking about, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new think about that the new has come because of the grace of god listen to this brothers and sisters sin no longer gets to be the defining theme of our lives because of god's grace sin doesn't define us any more moses became the prophet that was used by god to point the way to a greater prophet David became a king whose line extended to the king of kings and lord of lords. The apostle Paul's life points back to the work of Christ. And then the apostle Paul's life pushed forward in the work of Christ. It shows us God's grace makes us new. We're no longer defined by the old. The problem with us, brothers and sisters, is we look at people and we say they're not worthy of the grace of God. They're not worthy of the grace of God. And here's the news for all of us. None of us are worthy of the grace of God. None of us are worthy. So because I have received God's grace in my unworthiness, I extend God's grace to other unworthy people. And maybe you're sitting in this room today, maybe you know somebody. Maybe you know someone who has encouraged abortion. Maybe you know someone who has had an abortion. And maybe you have cut them off from your life because of the, the heinousness of, of what they have done. And let me just tell you, I know we can't change people's hearts. Only God can do that. But what we can do is with the, the help that God gives us and the grace that God has poured upon us, we can point them to the grace of God that can make them new as well. This is, this is the grace of God, and it is scandalous, and it is beautiful. And that leads us to the last truth, which is this, abortion and the people of God. What would God have us to do as his people? What are we supposed to do? What is our response supposed to be to this heinous act? What should the church do? Let me just give you two, two thoughts here. First of all, we should repent of our persistent indifference. We need to repent of our indifference towards this. As I quoted earlier, James 4, 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, it's a sin. 
We don't know what we're, I mean, we, we know what we're supposed to be doing. But here's the beautiful thing. God has always accomplished social change through his children, um, kind of through the outcry of his children who are standing against the sins of the world for the sake of the salvation of the world. Let me say that again, just, just so you follow along with me. God has almost always accomplished social change through the outcry of his people who are standing against the sins of this world for the sake of the salvation of the world. Meaning, us as the children of God, we stand against things so that we can stand for something greater. The problem is most churches, all we're known for is what we stand against. We're not known for what we stand for. We're known they stand against this, they stand against that, they stand against this. And we need to be saying, yes, that is true when it comes to the word of God. But we also stand for the fact that God extends his grace even to you. We need to stand for the salvation of sinners in the world. Yet, let me say this, unfortunately, and I'm trying to choose my words very carefully here, there have always been blind spots in the church. Think about when you drive, and one of the worst places you get into is you're looking in that side mirror and there's a, that blind spot that you don't see that car coming and sometimes you go to, to get over and that little sometimes it's a nice honk of I'm here and sometimes it's a not so nice honk um, and you pull back over you're like oh that could have been terrible that could have been bad and the thing is the church I think for so many years just and, and, and so many different issues in the in the culture of the church had blind spots in it Think about where the church was during segregation. How the church, um, especially in the, in the South, stood against the dehumanization of a race. Many people saw um, people of other races as inhuman or less human, yet they would gather together for the worship of God on Sundays and sing with their loudest voice to, to the God who created everybody in His image. You think about that disconnect. And I say that to say this, I think that history is going to prove that the, the blind spot of our generation is going to be abortion. I think that in 40 years from now, our grandchildren or great-grandchildren are going to look at us and either they're going to be so desensitized to the taking of human life. And if that's the case, then that is our legacy, that we would let it get to a point where our kids become desensitized to kids that are being, babies that are being murdered, or our Grandchildren are going to look at us and say, how in the world did you live in a world that allowed the killing of babies and you didn't do anything about it? I mean, think about that reality. We can't just sit back and be indifferent towards or ignore this issue. We need to repent of our indifference. We need to repent of the fact that we have kind of grown accustomed to this or callous to this. And then secondly, we need to respond with passionate involvement. I don't know what that means. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I know what Ephesians 5 says. I love this line that Paul says in Ephesians 5 that I think we need to hear today as a church. And, and Paul says this, wake up. Wake up. And I think that's where we are. We need to be woken up. We need to be uh, awoke as what is happening. And we need to pray with passion about what's going on. Here is the truth today, brothers and sisters. We cannot legislate morality. You can't legislate morality. You, can't, you can have all um, conservative people on the Supreme Court, and the reality is they can't make laws that are going to change people's hearts. They can't. Only God can do that. 
Supreme Court justices, presidents, whoever, governors, whoever you want to talk about, they can't change people's hearts. God can. Now, I'm not saying we ignore the political side. No, we do not do that. We have been given an amazing privilege and responsibility that other nations would give everything for. And I believe that we're going to be responsible for what we do with the freedoms that God has given us without a doubt. But we need to pray and ask God to do what only God can do. And only God can change the hearts of people. And then we need to speak out. If you're taking notes, write this reference and then look at this up. Psalm 31, 8. Excuse me, Proverbs, I'm sorry, Proverbs 31.8. Proverbs 31.8, listen to what it says. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. Let me say it one more time. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. We need to speak up and then we need to act. We need to do whatever it is that God has called us to do to stand up for, for life. And, and maybe, just, just maybe all of these words are nonsense or maybe, just maybe, God is calling us to extend grace or God will lead us into a conversation this week that we can point people who have a, a mindset that is filled with depravity, we can point them to a, a life that God has ordained for His glory, by His grace, for something amazing. And I pray that God would help us to do that. Let me just end with one quote by, by Francis Schaeffer who says this, Certainly every Christian ought to be praying and working to nullify the abominable abortion law. But as we work and as we pray, we should have in mind not only this important issue, as though it stood alone, rather we should be struggling and praying that this whole other total entity, which is this godless worldview, can be rolled back with all of its results across all of life wouldn't it be amazing if we prayed and we spoke and we stood in such a way that there would come a day that we don't have to to have sanctity of human life sunday but then we would have 40 million children in america that we would have to make sure are being cared for and that has a whole nother level here of of involvement and so what we're saying is this those children even them. The, the picture is parents might not want them. Parents might not see them as, as valuable. But Psalm 127 still tells us that children are a blessing from the Lord. Regardless of their background, regardless of if they're wanted by their moms or their dads, they are a blessing. And let me just lay this on top of this. I know myself and Misty, we are so grateful for a family in India who found out that a little 15-year-old girl was, was pregnant. And instead of deciding to have the child and leave him on the streets to die or to abort the child, they decided to have the child and give that child up to an orphanage. And we are so thankful they did. So thankful they did. And I, there are, there's so much that we can do, brothers and sisters. There's so much we have to do. So much we have to do. But I, I pray that we would not see ourselves as doing it alone. That we would lock arms and we would stand for that which is right and good and true. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand, and we're going to call the musicians forward as we enter in this time of invitation and consecration. Basically, we ask that whatever the Lord is leading you to do, that you would do it in this moment. I don't know what it is, but I know that God speaks, and I know He wants us to do what He says. So let's, let's pray together. Father, in this moment...
we approach you, God, in humility. We also approach you, God, in, in our sin and acknowledging, Lord, that we need forgiveness for our own indifference when it comes to this issue. Forgive us for our indifference. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have have not stood for the things that you stand for, have not fought for life, not stood for life, in the same way have not extended grace, Lord, to those who, who have gotten caught up in the, the heinousness of, of, of these acts in this way. So we pray, God, that you will just do in and through us in this time what only you can, God, that you would awaken our hearts to value what you value, to call life that which you call life, to love that which you love. And also, Lord, that you would empower us to speak for those who aren't able to speak for themselves. To stand up, Lord, and do whatever it is that you're calling us to do. Doing it in love, doing it while extending your grace, God. To those who are so desperately in need of it. God, we are not here this morning throwing stones at people who have committed acts, Lord, that we call heinous or against our ability to understand, but we are here today, God, thanking you for the grace that you have given to us. And also confessing, Lord, that there is no sin that is greater than the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no sin greater than the cross. God, stir that, I pray, in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.